Thank you, Chuck. I just want to say a few things before we actually look to our text and a message. Um, good to be back with all of you. Uh, it's been, my math is correct, five years since we've moved away. And uh, Laura's been, just the other day, um, six-year anniversary, not the kind of anniversary you really celebrate, of her cancer diagnosis. So, but God has been good and has protected her health and uh, granted her a wonderful spirit about facing those challenges. And she's had a great testimony to lots of folks and attribute all that to God's grace and to the faithful prayers of people all around, even on the other side of the world. So we're very thankful for that. And uh, she's doing pretty well, as you can see. Myself, uh, a couple years ago, in answer to prayer, God gave me a part-time job as a hospice chaplain. So I work about 15 hours a week doing that. Right now I have, uh, we have five hospice patients. Um, according to my boss recently, we had uh, 30-some people I said goodbye to last year. Um, people who are dying and I sometimes tell people part of my job is I talk to dying people and I, I do and of course we all are in a way um, but I also have even though I work for a county health district um, the freedom dependent upon where people are at to talk to people about Jesus and I've had many such opportunities it happens all the time and uh, I have one lady right now who I've been visiting for about a year, once a week, and in essence every week we have a Bible study. So so that's a great opportunity that God has given to have involvement in that ministry, a very important one. A wonderful group of uh, coworkers, those who work in hospice have to have a big heart for that sort of thing. It's not an easy job. But anyway, thank you for your prayers for Laura. I appreciate your prayers for me in that role. It's not easy, and, uh, and, and yet it is a great opportunity uh, to see God work in the lives of people. And I've seen people make a profession of faith in Christ, and that's obviously you know, the great reward in doing that work is to have those opportunities. Alrighty, all that being said, let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to get to our text. If you looked at the bulletin, you saw we have a really long title. Yeah, we have a fair amount of things to say about that, so let's go ahead and pray. Our great Heavenly Father, how thankful we are to be gathered together in your name here in this place this morning to worship you, just acknowledging our dependence upon you for every good thing. You are such a gracious and merciful God. Um, and we pray that you would work in our hearts today as we look to your word, consider the great things you've done. May our hearts rejoice and may we be encouraged to trust you all the more daily in our Christian lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to go back far enough, uh, some 65 plus years, and looked at this very site where we are now, it would look quite a bit different. There was no big church building here. There was a seed barn. And uh, one day, my friends, Helen Lee and 
Harriet Pollard. We're walking down the street here in front, Seppa Lane. And as they would go on walks, they were good friends. In fact, some of you know, uh, Helen played the organ for many years here. Harriet Pollard played the piano for 50 years here. 50 years, imagine that. Both dear friends. It's not long after our coming here, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, having just arrived to be the pastor here, Helen Lee, being the ex-school teacher type that she was, uh, invited me over for an interrogation. Literally, she wanted to know who I was and had some questions. Well, fortunately I passed because I was still here and uh, we had a wonderful relationship. And likewise with Harriet, what a dear, wonderful woman, Harriet Pollard, miss them both. They would take walks down the road. And one day, Helen and uh, Harriet have a conversation about how that building would make a wonderful church. It's just a sea barn. But you know what happened? Some of you do. You were around. They converted that sea barn into a church building, that ordinary sea barn. And you know, for years, um, as pastor here, for almost 30 years, I'd hear stories from those who had been around for a long time about how they loved those days back in the sea barn. How they loved worshiping Jesus in a sea barn, ordinary sea barn. And I want to introduce the sermon that way because I think we have in our day a funny, not funny, sad way of looking at things within the church and within our lives. You know, we as Americans, we like things big, bigger and better, right? But we can even think that way about the church. And to be honest, in recent decades, there's been a movement that says basically you've got to have bigger. You've got to have a pastor with a lot of charisma. You have to have a bigger building. You've got to have lots of programs. You have to have comfortable seating. You have to have entertaining music. You need bigger and better if you're going to get anything done. And tragically, that movement's caused a lot of harm to the church in recent decades, immeasurable harm, because frankly, that's not the way God works. He doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need pastors with lofty degrees. He doesn't need lots of books and conferences and charismatic pastors or any of that stuff. He doesn't need a fancy building. I've seen plenty of evidence of that. Dying trips to Africa, pastors who have little or nothing by way of resources, people who have to work hard to get to church and sit on little benches and have outside bathrooms. They have no hymn books, they have no PowerPoint, they have no power. And yet, you can see and you will find in those churches, God working in an incredible way. Now, how is that? possible. I'm looking on my phone for a quote by Francis Schaeffer, um, noted pastor and theologian who said years ago, this is a long time ago he said this, talking about the real problem in the modern church. The real problem is this, and he says it's not any external thing. It's nothing that we face from the outside. He said, 
The problem is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually or corporately. So this is not just a corporate problem. This could be our problem individually. Tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. He said, that's our big problem. You know what? He didn't know the half of it because he didn't know how things would go. It even got worse than what he thought back then. Trying to do the work that God has given in our own strength, in our own power. And when we do, we fail. Well, the good news is that God is well pleased to work through ordinary people to to do extraordinary things. And he's not constrained by such things we tend to take pride in, like, you know, a person's good looks or intelligence, their abilities, their talents. He doesn't need any of that. And proof of that is right here in Acts 1.8. Turn there with me, if you will, to Acts 1.8. I love this text. And I appreciate that Greg kind of introduced it last week by looking at Matthew 16, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And here we kind of have a follow-up verse, follow-up truth to that, because here we, under, we have the means by which God planned to do that work. The how part. And uh, in the context, of course, in Acts 1.8, we have Jesus speaking to his disciples before his ascension, right? These are his last words to his disciples. Kind of like when I served on board a submarine in the engine room and we had an engineering officer and sometimes he'd go away to go to sleep for the night, but he'd leave a night order book and in the night order book were his standing orders for what we were to do. Well, Jesus has left the church standing orders, what we're to do until he returns. And here they are. Notice what it says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, he said. Now, we don't want to skip over the wonderful truth of who Jesus was talking to here. It's very helpful to consider that. Who are the you in this passage? Well, it's the disciples minus Judas, right? In fact, if we go back in the gospel accounts, it's those he prayed all night about before he chose. Those 12. Did you know that? He deliberately chose these folks. And who were they? Ordinary men. They weren't amongst the religious elite. They weren't of the religious educated people. In fact, the Pharisees of Sanhedrin would later say of them, acknowledge that they were uneducated, untrained men. They were fishermen, a tax collector, zealot, others, merely human, imperfect men, demonstrate their limitations on numerous occasions. Jesus would repeatedly tell him in his earthly ministry, tell them of his pending suffering and death. But they couldn't comprehend. They never did or understand what he was talking about. On more than one occasion, imagine this. 
And in fact, on one occasion, after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, after he celebrated the Last Supper with them, they were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. Those 12 disciples. They once asked Jesus, as they passed through a village in Samaria, that refused to receive Jesus. They said, should we call fire down from heaven to consume these people? That's these disciples. When Jesus was arrested, they all fled the scene. Peter, who had previously pledged his undying devotion, denied ever knowing Jesus. Denied Jesus three times. Denied Jesus even to a slave girl. Even after the resurrection, the disciples were so afraid of retaliation, they hid themselves behind locked doors. They were ordinary men. They would later go on to do incredible things. God would use all of them, except Judas, of course, as it says in Acts 17.6, to turn the world upside down. After Pentecost, they were bold and faithful and served Jesus even to the point of death. All dying a martyr's death except for John. But they were nevertheless ordinary, imperfect men. I think that's important. I really do. In fact, I think it's important for us to acknowledge these are not the kind of men men would choose. In fact, somebody might say, Jesus, what were you thinking choosing those guys? And even with respect to Peter, he denied Jesus three times. What kind of guy is that to use to build your church upon in the first sermon? Incredible. You say, well, why would God choose people like that? Their resumes don't really measure up to the expectations of men. We don't have to wonder. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us, about all of us. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. <clears throat> Excuse me. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the main point, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, in the work that would be done, all the glory goes to whom? To God. Right? In fact, 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, concerning each of us, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what is the treasure? In that passage, the treasure is this knowing Jesus. That's a treasure. In fact, elsewhere, Paul said that knowledge of Christ is, amounts to unsearchable, unfathomable riches that we possess in knowing Jesus. But look where God has put that treasure of knowing Jesus in jars of clay, ordinary jars of clay, right? Nothing attractive. They're not what you look at. What makes them valuable 
is not the external, but what's inside, right? This knowledge of Jesus. And it goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That God is the one who does the thing through ordinary people. And, you know, that's good news for all of us, which means what it means for you, if you're born again here today, you're qualified. You're qualified to be used of God. You don't have to have a fancy degree. You don't have to have a Bible school education. You don't have to go to conferences, read a lot of books, get yourself all prepared and equipped that way. Some of those things might be very helpful. It's okay. But you don't need that. If you know Jesus, you're qualified. You're qualified to be used by God, just like they were. In fact, God delights to use you, even in your weakness. I, I, guess I, I guess it's okay if I use this example. I didn't ask ahead of time, so I suppose maybe I might get in trouble. I don't know. But those of you who know, who are here for 30 years, you know about my wife, Laura, and her work here in the work of ministry. You know how she labored here in countless ways whether it was in children's ministries or women's ministries or whether it was helping around the church in the kitchen or whether it was calling people or visiting people or preparing meals for people or whatever it was, for 30 years she did it. She did it the best it could be done. An incredible pastor's wife. So what happens, what happens if God lays you down with cancer? What happens if that health is all taken away and you can no longer do all those things? Does that mean it's over for you? Can God still use you? Oh, yes, he can. He absolutely can. It doesn't matter because the power comes from where? It comes from God, not from you. And that's the lesson. That, this is a needy lesson. And the reason I say that is because in recent decades, we've been sold a bill of goods in the church. Christians have been. They've been told unless you have the entertaining music and unless you have the pastor with charisma, unless you have the right building, you've got all the programs to meet everybody's demands, you can't accomplish ministry. It's a lie. Don't need any of that. All you need is people who are available, who are spirit-led and spirit-empowered to do what God has given them to do. That's what you need. And it's an important point. And it brings us to our next point. Notice what Jesus told them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see that there? Not the first time Jesus talked to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go back to John chapters 14 through 16, you'll find repeated instructions by Jesus to his disciples about the coming Holy Spirit. In fact, there's some amazing statements back there. Do you know that Jesus said, it's to your advantage disciples that I go away because if I don't go away the spirit won't come isn't that incredible what an amazing statement he said amongst other things and we know from those chapters and this is important for us to know the Holy Spirit is a person not a force he's a person the Holy Spirit is a divine person we also know that from those chapters 
And we know the Holy Spirit is a divine person that indwells every born-again believer in Christ. Which is to say, if you're born again, you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. In fact, Romans chapter 8 explains all those who are led by the Spirit, those are the children of God. Right? So you're born again, believer in Christ here today. You have the divine person of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's great. Praise the Lord for it. And you stand in a similar place as those 11 disciples did a couple thousand years ago. Now, notice that he had said earlier that they were to wait in verse 4, wait for what the Father has promised. Now, if you can imagine, if those disciples had said, well, wait a minute here, we know what happened. Jesus ascended into heaven, and what did they do? They had a prayer meeting, right? You read that later in the chapter. But imagine instead they went out on their own and said, you know what, you know, this, over, this Holy Spirit, this, this matter is really overstated. We can go do this thing. We don't need the Holy Spirit. We're going to go out on our own and do that. Can you imagine what would have happened? But instead, they waited. And then came Pentecost. And we read about what happened, you know, and they spoke in tongues, and the people are wondering what's going on here. Remember that? The speaking in tongues gets a lot of attention, but its primary purpose was so that those people would wonder, what's going on here? And Peter responds with a sermon. And it's so remarkable. What happens there? I skipped over a couple of verses. I just wanted to, I, I need to go back to them before I go further. Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 63, said, it's an important text. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, we don't have it in ourselves. We should not think of the Christian life of us doing things for Jesus. That's a wrong perspective. We can't do anything for Jesus. It's Jesus working through us. It's the Spirit of God working through us. We don't have it within ourselves. We don't have the energy. We don't have the wisdom. We don't have the ability to do the things that we've been called to do. In fact, did you know everything that you've been given to do as a believer in Christ is something you need to do, according to the Scriptures, by the Spirit? You only understand the Scriptures by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We are to pray by the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 6. Did you know that? We have fruit in our lives by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, right? We only are able to witness by the Spirit. You can go on. You'll find these verses throughout the New Testament that everything you've been given to do is a by the Spirit thing. You put off sin by the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Growing Christ by the Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All of it. And we have such a great example right here because I want you to notice what happens. We have Peter here now. Remember what happened to Peter. Peter had been so bold. We might even think commendable. When he says to Jesus, even if everybody else falls away, I won't fall away. I'm ready to die for you, he said. Remember that? We might think it commendable. And then Jesus goes off to pray, remember, with the disciples and Jesus prays three times in that account, and every time he goes back to the disciples, and instead of praying, they're doing what? Sleeping. 
In that context, Jesus says to them, pray, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How weak is it? Well, Peter would find out soon enough because there he was in the courtyard and he's being asked after, Peter, after Jesus' arrest about his relationship with Jesus. And courageous Peter is no longer courageous. Isn't it remarkable? It's just him and a slave girl. Just him and a slave girl. And he says, that, I didn't even know the man. Speaking of Jesus, Peter says. How incredible. He's not willing to tell the truth even in that. Now, lest we pick on him too much, I've been plenty of occasions where I had an opportunity to speak up about Jesus and I didn't. And I think we probably all would say the same. But consider the difference being filled with the Spirit of God made in Peter's life because now instead of before his slave girl, he stands before a crowd of 10,000 people. Imagine that. A crowd of 10,000 people, not just one. And there he is, empowered by the Spirit of God to boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus. We don't have time to go into all the details of that first sermon, but let me tell you this. It begins and ends with Jesus. And everything about him. His life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It is a thoroughly, 100% Christ-centered message. A beautiful sermon. And how did he do it? You know, on repeated occasions, Jesus tried to explain about his suffering and death. And they could never understand it. But now spirit-filled Peter understands And he proclaims that truth to a crowd of 10,000 people that Jesus has risen again. And he proves it by the scriptures. Don't you love it? He's a different man, empowered and led by the Spirit of God. In witnessing to that group. You know, amongst that group, because Peter will indict them, he says, you crucified him, speaking of Jesus. There were some in that group that were there. Some in that group who've been crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine? And there's Peter, and he's so bold, he's going to indict them for their crime, and we know what's going to happen. 3,000 of them are going to believe. Now, how do we go from cowardly Peter to courageous? What made the difference in his life? Was it some seminar on evangelism that changed him? Was it the books on that he read? Somebody come alongside and said, Peter, you've got to stop being so cowardly. You've got to try harder. Was it that? Of course not. It wasn't any of that. It was the divine person of the Holy Spirit working in Peter to give him the boldness to proclaim the truth about Jesus. And the formula is no different today than it was 2,000 years ago. No different. And that's good news for you and me. That's good news. Because you've got people in your life who need to know about Jesus. You've got family members who desperately need to know the good news of Christ's death for sin and resurrection from the dead. They've got to know. Right? You've got friends who've got to know. Who's going to tell them? How are they going to find out? Well, the good news is, God is glad to work through ordinary people like you and me, spirit-empowered, to proclaim the truth about him. Same way he's been doing it for 2,000 years. And he does it that way here. He does it that way in Africa. He does it that way in India. He's always been doing it that way. 
Praise God for it. Now we have a couple of commands in Scripture, and we don't really have the time to, to look at them all right now. But in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, right? And it goes on to explain what that looks like in the life of a believer. It's literally be being kept filled by the Spirit. And you can't be kept filled by the Spirit apart from the Word of God and it having a huge role within your life. Colossians 3.16 talks about that. We've got another command in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. You not carry out the desires of the flesh. Two incredibly important commands. A couple of negative ones. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Those are all a part of our Christian life. Those are the things that are necessary if we're going to be properly related to the person of the Holy Spirit. If he's going to have his way with us, that we can be used by him in making the truth about Jesus known. Does that make sense? This formula is not really complicated, is it? Ordinary men and women, spirit-empowered to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the formula. God knows who we are. You not make this complicated. It doesn't need to be complicated. It isn't complicated. And notice the last part. Ordinary men given to share an extraordinary message. You shall be my witnesses. And I already mentioned that in this sermon, in Acts chapter 2, remember Peter before, what he said, I didn't even know the man. Well, that's not much of a witness concerning Jesus, right? But then in this sermon, in Acts chapter 2, notice something here. In verse 22, the first part of the sermon is an explanation as to why they were speaking in tongues. The sermon, in essence, starts in verse 22. Notice, men of Israel, listen to these words. First word. Do you see what it is? New American Standard. It's Jesus. First word. And you shall be my witnesses. The Spirit has come upon you. First word, Peter says, is what? Jesus. First word. Look at the rest of the sermon. Down to verse 36. The end of the sermon. Last words in the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom he crucified, a wonderful summary of the person and work of Christ. And there's the other word, Christ, right there at the end of it. See that? It couldn't be any more thoroughly Christ-centered than that. How wonderful. How beautiful. How amazing. You know, we read in John chapter 16, Jesus said to the Holy Spirit, He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you, he said. And here you see it, don't you? Here you see the Spirit of God working in Peter's life. He shall glorify me, that is the Spirit of God, will point towards Jesus. That's what he'll always do. In fact, that's how you can tell. Is it a ministry of the Spirit of God? Because if it's a ministry of the Spirit of God in anybody's life or any ministry, it's always going to direct towards, look towards the person of Jesus to glorify him. Wonderful. 
Beautiful. We think about that, Acts 1-8, that part there, you shall be my witnesses. Remember what I said about standing orders? The last words Jesus gave to his church? Here it is. This is the big thing. This is the main thing. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2-2, I determined to know nothing amongst you but Christ and him crucified. That's the heart and essence of my ministry, he said. That's what it's all about. I love that quote by D.L. Moody. It's so important, not just to a ministry, but to any one of us. When he said, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. Well, what is the main thing? We don't have to wonder. The main thing is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done upon the cross. The main thing is the gospel. In fact, as we read there in Acts chapter 2 and Peter proclaiming these truths about Jesus... As you go on in the book of Acts, you find that that was what the early church was proclaiming. It's there in that first sermon. Christ's death and resurrection is at the heart of Peter's second sermon in Acts 3. In the response of Peter and John to the religious leaders, when they said... There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. In the ongoing ministry of the church, Acts 4. In the preaching of Philip in Samaria, Acts 8. In Peter's message to Cornelius and his family, Acts 10. Paul's message to the Gentiles, Acts 13. That very witness of Jesus Christ the heart and center of all that was going on in the early church. That gospel message, Christ's death for our sins and resurrection from the dead, is said to us to be a matter of first importance. And so let's stop there for a second. Is it a matter of first importance to you? That gospel message. Is it today? Do you glory in it? Are you thankful for it? Are you worshiping God for it? The fact that Jesus Christ willingly died on the cross for your sins. Praise God for such a wonderful work that he has done. That he rose from the dead. Is that a matter of first importance to you? You know, in that 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you can look it up later, uh, passage, verses 1 through 4. It says, that's the message by which we are being saved. Which is to say, it's not a message we take and we believe and then we put it aside on the back shelf. It is the message that's in our heart all of our lives, that gospel message. We're always praising God for it. We'll be praising God for it in heaven when we're worshiping the Lamb of God who was slain, right? Remembering what it is he did for us. It never leaves our hearts. It never should leave our lips. That wonderful message. It is, according to 1 Timothy 1.11, that message, that witness of Christ, the glorious gospel to the blessed God. It's also, Romans 1.16, you know, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's got relevance to our day. People need Jesus. Boy, what a confusing world, right? For those of us who have been around for a while, what changes Incredible changes have taken place in half a century, if you're old like me. 
And you look at this world today, and it is so incredibly needy. I talked to a lady yesterday at the motel. She's telling me about how her husband had died years ago, unexpectedly. And two of her children, teenagers, have both attempted suicide in recent years. So how heartbreaking. This is kids. You know, if you've got kids, you've got grandkids around today, they got a target on their back. There has never been, there has never been in America a scarier time for kids and grandkids than right now. That's a fact. All that to say, people need Jesus. They desperately need Jesus. And here's the formula. It's not doing whatever is necessary to entertain or attract people to somehow get them enticed to come in the church door. That's not the formula. The formula is really simple. Ordinary men and women, spirit-led and empowered to share the truth about Jesus, that's the way God does it. That's the way he does it in Africa. That's the way he does it in India. And if it's going to be done here, it's going to be done that same way. It's the same way it was back there. You imagine those people back then, those 11 disciples. One more would be added later in the chapter, we know. Can you imagine? They would have never, they would have never imagined what would happen, what God would do over these 2,000 years. They could have never imagined us sitting here 2,000 years in a place called Astoria, worshiping Jesus, right? As the church's pastor is on the other side of the world in India. They would have never imagined. How did God do that? Ordinary men, spirit-led and empowered, bearing witness of Jesus. That's how he did it. It's good news. Because you can take that formula anywhere. Where you have people we're born again and have a heart to do the will of God. So, some 65 years ago, two ordinary ladies thought to convert an ordinary seed barn into a church building. So a church was born in this place. Praise God for it. Some of you were around. You remember those things long ago. Wasn't that many years later, Three ordinary teens went out knocking on doors. Ended up in Seaside, where I was just yesterday. Happened upon my Uncle Bob's door. He's having a party. He's a hippie and a logger. He thinks it's incredibly funny. These teens are out there talking to people about Jesus and inviting him to church. I'll show them, he said. They're a bunch of hypocrites. He shows up in the dirtiest, smelliest clothes he has. With a dog in the back of the truck, he knows he'll bark incessantly during the church service. True story. You know what happened? That first service? He's sitting there. Nobody has said anything to him. Finally, end of the service. It's over. Arvo Seppa comes walking down the aisle. He thinks, here it is. They're going to tell me to get out of here. Arvo says, I'm so glad you're here. This is just where you need to be. You know what happened out of that? My Uncle Bob was saved. Not just my Uncle Bob. That led to the salvation of my Uncle Frank. 
and not just Bob and Frank, that led to my salvation too. You know, Frank is still a pastor after all these years, all these decades, some 50 years of pastoral ministry. Can you imagine? You know, my Uncle Bob is still a pastor after all these years. He's pastoring over there at Emmanuel Bible Baptist Church in Plymouth, Maine. People love him. He's got a great ministry. He's also the director of Hope and Mercy Mission, the U.S. director, which is another story. Do you think those three teens would have ever imagined when they were knocking on the door back then? They could have ever imagined what would happen as a result of that outreach. You know the church back then, when they heard the news about this crazy guy in Seaside, they prayed for him. God did that work. He did that. He didn't need no fancy program. He didn't need the specially qualified people. He had three ordinary teens knocking on doors. God did it all. I got a call one day from my Uncle Bob some years ago, probably about 10 years ago. I'm involved in this work in Uganda. I need some help. Would you be willing to come over and help us? So go over there and meet those people on that first trip. There's about 20 of them. So eager to hear the word of God. What an incredible blessing. And this church joined itself to that ministry. Poured out our hearts in serving those people on the other side of the world. And do you know, let me back up for a second. Before that day, when I got that call from Bob, about 10 years earlier, Paul Maswigba and his wife Lydia are in his hometown village. Lots of people have died from AIDS, and there's lots of orphans. And Paul and Lydia are in that village, and they prayed, and their prayer was simple. God, what's to be done for all these children? Do you know what God has done since then? There are 300 churches involved in that ministry of Hope and Mercy Mission. Can you imagine? What have anybody thought? Paul, did you know, as a result of your prayer, that God is going to bless and there's going to be 300 churches involved in this work? Nobody would have ever believed it. Did you know that they have now five graduating classes from Faith Bible School over there? Where they have four Ugandan pastors who are training pastors there in that village where we work? Praise God for it. Who would have ever imagined he would do such a thing? How did he do it? Was it an elaborate plan? A lot of methodology? We plan it all out and all the rest of it. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was God using ordinary men and women to do all of that work by the Spirit of God in them. Praise God for it. Some eight years ago or so, I was sitting in my office and I got a call from this fellow. And... I couldn't really understand what he was saying. His accent was so strong. And, you know, you've probably undoubtedly had calls from people overseas before, and you're not really sure who these people are. Well, the fellow says to me, and I got this part of it, God told me that I should call you. And I said, well, yeah, sure, right. But I did say, I'm having a hard time understanding what you're saying. Would you email me back what it is you, not, you want? So he emailed me back, and that began a conversation back and forth over eight years via email, messenger, messages, even phone calls, and even video phone calls. And 
pictures of baptisms and persecution and all kinds of things, and instruction and help, until more recently I directed my friend, Bahit, to Pastor Caleb. And now Pastor Caleb is there on the other side of the world with Bahit. Now how in the world did that happen? Was it some elaborate plan, some methodology, some scheme of mine, of beads, or anybody's? No, it wasn't. No, it was the Spirit of God working in the hearts of his people to do all of that. Praise God for it. Thank God for it. You're the result. Your salvation is a result of some ordinary man or woman who is spirit-led and empowered to share with you the good news about Jesus. That's how it happened. And right now, this very day, you've got a lot of people in your life who need to hear about Jesus. And here's the problem. If you and I are going to try to do that in our self-effort, we're going to fall on our face just like Peter did. Because we don't have the strength, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the boldness. We don't have what it takes in us to do the work that God has given. In fact, it's God working through us as channels of blessing, not us doing in our own fleshly efforts. Just like Francis Schaeffer said. So praise God for a lowly seed barn, a couple of ladies who thought they could make a church of it some 65 years ago. Look what God has done. They would have never imagined a day when the church would have such an outreach to Africa like we did, like we do. They would have never imagined a day where their pastor would be on the other side of the world in India encouraging a group of men who desperately needed help. They would have never imagined. But such is the nature of our God, right? Indeed, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, we're just so very thankful for the work that you do. You are always surprising us, doing things exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think in our lives and our ministries. What a great and awesome God you are. I remember our friend Jim Thompson used to say how we would get in the way of the work that you do. Oh, is that so true, Lord? That we would just be availed to you. That we would just be empty vessels before you. That the Spirit of God fill and work, use in whatever way you please. We look back over the course of time and we see how you've done such things time and time again. And we know you would do the same today. We are in such desperate times, Lord. Help us to forsake any inclination to do whatever we do in our own strength and instead understand that you have availed to us in the Holy Spirit a friend who can empower us to do things that would transcend our greatest dreams. Help us to be used by you. To your honor and glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.